Great to see you here at the EU public meeting. My name is Rowan Kemp. If I haven't met you before, I'd love to meet you over afternoon tea today. Uh, I'm not an art student and I've been here for more than three years and I'm not going to tell you how long. Um, but it's good to see you here at this EU public meeting. Why don't I pray before we get started today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together today. We pray that as we look at your word together, you might give us minds to understand it so that we might know how to live as your people in your world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've called today's talk, Slavery, Why the Bible Doesn't Condemn It. I don't know what was your reaction as we had that little passage of scripture read. So often it's just easy to sit there, isn't it? And we hear the Bible read and it just sort of wafts over us and it doesn't really make any difference whatsoever. But did you actually take in what was said there? If the slave declares, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out a free person, then his master shall bring him before God, he shall be brought to the door or the doorpost, his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him for life. Doesn't that sort of make you just cringe a little bit? Doesn't it sort of make you just go, okay, this is one of those passages of the Bible I sort of wish wasn't there because it'd be so much easier to be, you know, pro the Bible if it didn't have this sort of stuff in it, wouldn't it? About slavery. Oh, well, we all know slavery is a dreadful thing. Why would, why doesn't the Bible condemn slavery? Well, that's the question we're going to look at today. Why the Bible does not condemn slavery? It comes to us in this, uh, comes up because we're working through the book of Exodus. And we're up to this little section here that starts in chapter 20, verse 22, and goes through to about the end of chapter 23. That's the section we're looking at today. And you might say, well, slavery isn't really a big issue. Beth asked you before, how many people do you think in the world today might be trapped in slavery? You might be surprised to know the answer. 27 million, they estimate. 27 million people, they suggest, are trapped in slavery today in various parts of the world. That's a lot of people. Need I say, that's more than the whole population of Australia in slavery today. So yeah, slavery is a serious, a big issue. Uh, What sort of slavery are we talking about? Uh, There's a couple of different examples there on the screen for you. Bonded labour. What that means is that's where someone says, I will take you from this country and give you a new life in another country uh, or a new life in another part of the country um, and we'll provide you with a job. It's going to cost you for us to move you like that but because you'll have a job you'll be able to work off the fee for us. And so people go, okay, it sounds like a good deal. They ended up in a bonded labour situation. But often the situation is constructed such that there's no way that they will ever pay off the cost. They're actually just stuck there with this huge debt that they have to pay off in this particular sort of job and they have no option. They cannot get out of it. It's bonded labour and often uh, involves the the labour could be prostitution, something like that. Big issue in uh, parts of Europe at the moment. Uh, women being moved from one, part, one country to another country, thinking they can start a new life, thinking they can get employment because they can't find a job in their home country or hometown, but actually they're bonded into prostitution and they're stuck in it. They can't escape. That's bonded labour. Forced labour is where you take somebody and you 
make them do something. Um, maybe a militia group has come in and just uh, said, right, you guys are all going to be our pack horses. You're going to carry all our stuff. And if you don't do it, we kill you. And you just come around with that. It's forced labour. Involuntary human trafficking happens in parts of Africa where children are taken from one country or one part of the country to another country um, against their will. It's involuntary uh, and they're sold off as slaves. Slavery by descent, which is where you may never have chosen to be a slave at all, but you're a slave because your parents were slaves and maybe their parents before them. That You're in a relationship with with a slave owner, with a landholder, such that uh, you're just born into this situation and there is no escape for you. There's some of the different types of slavery we're talking about today. 27 million people. It's a lot. Now, statistics don't always do it for us, do they? They sort of wash over us a bit, little bit. Let me tell you a story. Um, I hope you can see. You can't see it very well. I'm going to turn off the lights here. I'm going to try to turn off the lights here. You laughed too soon. Okay. Um, this young girl here, this Sudanese girl, her name is Abak. Uh, let me read you a little bit about Abak's story. Abak was just a baby when her parents were killed during a raid by a militia group in Sudan's decade-old civil war. When Abak fell from her slain parents' arms, she was somehow hidden in the rubble and the commotion of the raid and the militia never found her. Fortunately, her aunt was able to hear about what had happened in this particular village and come and rescue Abak from the rubble and take her as her own. However, that that was just just the beginning, really, of Abak's story because uh, another militia raid, this time to where her aunt was, meant that Abak was then taken as one of the children who were abducted by this militia group. She was the one this time who was snatched up and carried away by men she'd never seen before. And they write here, she was the one screaming for help but could hear no reply, only yelling and weeping. What happened to her? Well, Abak was taken into the north of Sudan and held as a slave for 10 years. She was forced to look after the slaveholders' children, clean the house and serve everyone in the family. She was never paid and was never allowed to go outside on her own. She had no idea what had happened to her aunt and her friends in the village and feared that they were dead. Still, she dreamed of her aunt finding her in the north and taking her back home. And when Abak did uh, not do something to her slaveholder's liking, he would threaten to sell her to someone in another country. And she took these threats very seriously and therefore always tried to please the slaveholder, reasoning that her aunt would have a difficult time finding her if she was taken to yet another country. Now, the good news is Abak is now freed from slavery and has been reunited with her aunt. But that's not the end of her problems. Even while free, she's not entirely escaped a sense of fear and confusion. She still faces many many challenges, we're told. After ten years away from her community, she feels like a stranger in her own home. She's forgotten much of her native Dinka language, And since the slaveholder forced her to speak Arabic, even her own home village's customs and religious beliefs now feel foreign to her. Abak said this, she said, I'm so happy to see my aunt again and be free, but now I do not know if I will ever feel at home again, no matter where I am. 
She says that her art encourages her to talk about the abuses she suffered as a slave, but that words do not come. She has trouble sleeping at night. Slavery leaves a terrible impact on people's whole life, not just for the time that they're actually in slavery, but it so affects them. What do we think about slavery? What do we do about slavery? What do we do particularly with the fact that the Bible doesn't condemn it? The Bible does not condemn slavery. Now the particular part of the book of Exodus that we're up to today is in what's called a section of the book called the Book of the Covenant, covering this section from chapter 23 to chapter 23. If we're going to try to understand why the Bible doesn't condemn slavery, first of all, try to understand what context does it talk about slavery in? What, what, when it talks about slavery, what, what's, the, um, what's the tone, what's the mood, what's the situation in which it's spoken into? So to do that, we've got to try to have a bit of a look at this Book of the Covenant, which is a sort of a sub-book within the book of Exodus. So we've got to look at those two things to try to put slavery in some sort of proper biblical context. So hopefully you've got your Bible there. And if you've got your Bible, I'm just going to turn to two passages to try to remind us of what the book of Exodus is about. So then we might understand eventually what slavery is about. Book of Exodus, go to chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. Exodus 6, 5 to 8. Here's the Lord, the one true God, talking to Moses and telling him what he's going to do. The Lord says to Moses, chapter 6, verse 5, I've heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are holding as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians and deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from the burdens of the Egyptians. What do you learn there? What's God doing in this book of Exodus? He's saving a people for himself who will worship him. That's what he's doing, saving them out of slavery so that they will worship him, so they will be in a relationship with him. I will be their God, they will be my people. When you think of worship, you might be thinking, you know, singing, praising, dancing, hands in the air. I don't know what what your image is of worship, but when I use the word worship here, I mean all of life, because that's what the Lord God was saving them into, a whole new relationship where they live for him. He's their God. They are his people and that's to affect every single aspect of their life. So he's saving his people out of slavery to worship him. That's what he's doing. Now move forward to Exodus chapter 19. These verses we looked at last week, which I said are the very heart of the whole book. Here you see the bigger plan, if you like, the bigger picture. He's saving his people for worship. Why? What are they to be? What are they to do? Exodus 19, verses 4 to 6. The Lord there says, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. So three things, remember, from last week he told these people they were to be. They were going to be his treasure possession. 
They were going to be a holy nation, holy like he's holy, that is different to everyone else, and a priestly kingdom. That is, they were in a way to represent God to the rest of the nations. They have a job to do, to be God's holy people and in that way tell the whole world what it means to be in right relationship with the one true living God. That's what they were to be, this kingdom of priests. So they've been saved to worship him and in particular as they live this different sort of life, different to all the nations around, they will communicate something about the one true God to everybody else in the world. That's how it's sort of meant to work. Then what does God then do? He goes on and says to them, well, this is, this is how you're to live that out. This is how you're to be that holy nation, that kingdom of priests. Because what's in the next chapter, chapter 20, we saw last week? The ten words, the ten commandments. The boundaries, if you like, of what it means to be a person who's in this right relationship, who's been saved, who's worshipping this one true God. That was the ten words that we saw last week, the ten commandments. But also then... Following on from the Ten Commandments, we have this next little section which we're at today, this what's called Book of the Covenant. What's that about? Well, think about the ten words. Think about some of the commands that God gave you. Things like, honour your parents. Right? There's one of the commandments. What it means to live in this saved relationship, this worshipping relationship with God, is to honour your parents. Honour your father and your mother. What does that actually look like, though? How do you go about honouring your parents? Well... This book of the covenant section that comes straight after the Ten Commandments fleshes that out a little bit for you. It fleshes it out. So, for instance, if you've got your Bible there, have a look in chapter 21, verse 15. It starts to flesh out that command to honour your parents. Chapter 21, verse 15. Whoever strikes father or mother shall be put to death. If you decide to beat up on your folks, that's not a way of honouring your parents. Right? It starts to flesh out what it means to honour them. Chapter 21, verse 17. Whoever curses father or mother shall be put to death. You honour your parents by the way you speak, what you say, both to them and about them. You see, the, the, the function of this book of the covenant, this actual section, it's meant to flesh out the ten words, how to actually live them out give you some, some pointers. And it really was a book. If you flick forward to chapter 24, verse 4, you can see there that Moses wrote down all these words. So what happens is God himself writes the ten words on the tablets and gives them to Moses and Moses writes down the book of the covenant, all these extra uh, laws, uh, all the extra help so you know how to live out the ten words and he reads that out to the Israelites. So that's, this actual, that's why it's called the Book of the Covenant because Moses wrote down the words of them. So let's just think then a little bit about the structure of this book. We know its point now. What's the point of it? To help you live out this relationship that God's put you in. Live out this relationship where you're saved to worship Him. Telling you how to be different to all the other nations. That's the point of it. What's actually in it? Well, we're not going to read right through it but I'll just show you the structure of it. It starts by saying... Have no other gods but the Lord and tells them the right way to worship in sense of do their religious practice. Talking about their religious activity here and in particular it's a whole lot of commands about what sort of altar you should set up or not set up. Right? That's how it starts. Then there's a whole section of laws, the bit we just read, some of it, about slaves, laws about violence, 
laws about property and including there, you know, your ox or, I mean, if you dig a big hole, it says, and um, you don't sort of cover it up or, or, and someone else falls into it or their ox falls into it and the damage is done and what should you do about that? It sort of helps you understand what it means to love your neighbour, right? Uh, how to make appropriate restitution if a thief steals something, what sort of restitution, what sort of compensation should they give uh, for stealing something? Social, very social, social and religious obligations, including um, sexual relationships. What's the right way to behave in sexual relationships? Some laws about justice, some laws about keeping the Sabbath. And then it finishes with some more stuff about the right way to worship, this time about keeping various festivals, and again saying to have no other gods. So I just point out the structure here because it's significant. Well, we're, uh, the question we're asking today is, what do we make of slavery? But the slavery here comes in a context within the Book of the Covenant. It's framed at the beginning and the end by the things that are repeated. Have no other gods. This is how you do your religious practice. Whole lot of laws. This is how you do your religious practice. No other gods. So even just the book itself says, this is what it means to live as a person in relationship with the one true God. This is how you be that holy nation. This is how you be the one who's dedicated to this God and not following any other God. The book itself, the book of the covenant itself, communicates that's what this is about. Now, why is that helpful? Why will that be helpful? Well, that's going to be helpful to us when we come to try to understand the institution of slavery. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. Just point out one other, a couple of other things here about this book of the covenant. Uh, first of all, what's the great goal of this book? I've said that you know, what it helps you do is live out this different sort of life, but what's the goal of living that different sort of life? You've got your Bible there. Turn to chapter 24. The book of the covenant finishes in chapter 23, and then what happens is Moses goes and says to the people, this is what God wants us to do, this is how to live, and they go, we'll do it. And then he says, okay, then they build an altar and Moses writes down all the words of the book. The next morning he gets up and he reads out all the words again and says to them, this is what God wants us to do. And they say, yes, we're going to live this way. And then they make some sacrifices. And what then happens in chapter 24, verse 9? Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up the mountain. And they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Also they beheld God and they ate and drank. You've got to stay on, on track with the story here, right? God said, this is how to live. The people have gone, yep, we're on board. And so then what happens? The representatives of the people have a banquet with God. They eat with God. They come up the mountain and they feast there with God. They don't actually see him because we know from elsewhere in the accounts of this we're told you did not see any form. You didn't actually see a body. I presume what it means is they saw his glory, his presence in some sort of manifested way. And they fellowshiped there with him. See, the goal of this great covenant that God's establishing, the whole point of it in the end is so that they can have communion with God fellowship with God, feasting, being in, living in the very presence of God. That's the goal of it. That's the goal of all that God is doing in this world, if you haven't clued to that. 
That's what it was like back there in the Garden of Eden. That's what was lost in the fall. And that's what everything that God is doing through all the covenants, climaxing in the Lord Jesus, is trying to recover and will recover that we might live in the very presence of God. And you might remember if you were at annual conference, we looked at a particular passage from Isaiah chapter 25, which was a, a prophecy that Isaiah said, which was about, he says, On this mountain the Lord will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples. It's picking up on the same language as back here in Exodus 24. It's a vision of the future. It won't just be the representative elders. It'll be all of God's people gathered together, indeed from all the nations of the world, onto the Lord's mountain, feasting with him. It's picture language, but it describes the great goal of this covenant, living in the presence of God. How would you sum up the theme then of the Book of the Covenant? Well, if you were here last week, you'll know that the great theme of all of the Old Testament law is love. This is the key point. If you want to understand the Book of the Covenant, the bit that we're in, and all these laws, it's actually about love. That's what this book is about. That's what the laws are about. How do I know that? Well, because Jesus himself said, Matthew chapter 22 that the two great commands, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, and to love your neighbour as yourself, all the law and the prophets hang on those two commands. So this book of the covenant with its laws, even about slavery, is about love. About loving God and loving neighbour. Now, trying to put those two concepts into the one sentence, love and slavery... They just don't mesh in our minds, do they? Like, how can slavery possibly be loving? It just doesn't mesh. And that's part of the problem, see? When we think slavery, we have in our minds, rightly, a buck, whose story I read to you. We think bonded prostitution, forced labour, involuntary human trafficking. That's what we think when we think slavery. So how can we go slavery and love It doesn't make sense, does it? And that's part of the problem is because our conception of slavery, slavery as it exists today, is not the same as slavery as it existed in the day of the Bible. So to understand the sort of slavery that they're talking about here and how that can possibly fit with this idea to love your neighbour as yourself, you've got to understand slavery as it was then. So what was slavery like then? Well, the key thing is actually you've got to have an economic understanding of slavery. The slave market in ancient times was central to the economy. Imagine for a moment if I said, okay, got this great idea for reforming the economic system of all of Australia. I think what we need to do is get rid of the concept of employment. No more employment. You can't employ somebody to do anything. What would happen to our economy? It would just. Can, can you imagine an economy without employment? You just say, such a thing doesn't exist. That's the sort of thing you're saying if you're saying they should have got rid of slavery in the ancient world. Slavery was how the economy functioned because there was no labour market, there was no concept of employment. In particular, most businesses were household businesses. We made pots. We made carpets, we 
whatever it is, right? And so the only way in your household business that you could get any skilled labour, apart from having more children and teaching them to do it for you, the only way you could increase your business that way by getting skilled labour in was by going and purchasing a slave. There were no consultants out there. There are no contractors. There's no concept of a labour market. The only labour market that really existed was day labour, unskilled day labour. If you want someone to come and dig you a hole, yes, you can go and get somebody and pay them to do that. If you want to get someone to come and just pick your grapes, yep, you can get somebody to do that for you. But if you want them to get to come and teach your children, because there's no schools, you have to buy a slave. If you want someone to come and do artistic designs on your pottery where so you can sell it, you have to get a slave to do it, someone who's got the skill. The skilled labour market was the slave market. And the thing was, it's not like employment because when you bought a slave, you bought them into your family and they became part of your home, part of your household. They lived with you. That's how the economy functioned, right? So when some people say, oh, the Bible, it should just condemn slavery, you've got to think, man... To condemn slavery at the time, in the way it was, required you to have an ent- a whole entire alternative economic system ready to go. You say, well, what about in the, se- the 18th and 19th century when, when people were you know, Christians like William Wilberforce and others like that advocated to get rid of slavery? Actually, what they were doing there was they were advocating getting rid of slavery as it existed in the colonial system. The entire economy wasn't built on slavery. The colonial system was was built on slavery. But lots of countries weren't functioning by their entire economy by slavery, such that he could say, let's get rid of slavery and let's bring the other system that we're already experiencing and put that in place. There was an alternative, right, to advocate for. Not the case at the time the Bible was written. Now, that's not, that's not therefore saying that's why we should justify slavery in any sense. I'm just saying that's the reality, right? If you're going to ask the question, why doesn't the Bible condemn slavery? It's tied up with the economic system of the day. What about slavery amongst God's people? Well, there's a couple of things we can say by looking carefully at different sections of the text, not just in Exodus, but also Leviticus, particular, particularly Leviticus chapter 25. There's also some key passages in Deuteronomy. But what we learn about slavery amongst God's people is that slavery was an economic last resort for the destitute. If you go away and look up Leviticus 25, 35 to 43, you'll see there that for an Israelite, if they were not able to make ends meet, if they were, if they were now destitute and their family couldn't help them and they tried everything else, the very last resort for them was that they could offer themselves as a slave to somebody else, to another Israelite. And that was a way for them of, I guess, not dying of starvation. It was a last resort. You could offer yourself as a slave to another Israelite. But in particular, it was limited in time. In the passage we had read for us, we read that you would only be a slave for six years. In the seventh year, whoever the slave owner was, they were to set you free. And elsewhere you can read in Deuteronomy, it says when they would set you free, they would actually just set you free and because they have been part of your home, part of your house for six, for six years, they would actually, they would send you out with, with lots of possessions. They were to be generous to you as you went out. 
from you. And so it was an economic last resort for the destitute. You opted into it yourself. It wasn't forced upon you. And it was for a limited time. Why was that? Why was it limited for a limited time? This is a, this is a great key point to understand. Because the practice of slavery amongst God's people was to be reflective of the fact that fundamentally they were all equal before God. So Leviticus chapter 25, 55 says this. The Lord says, just after saying about how um, slavery is to be limited in this sense, he says, For to me, the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants, says the Lord, whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. That is, the understanding of this holy people, this kingdom of priests, was that they were all slaves of God. Therefore, I shouldn't make you a slave for all time. If you need to be a slave for a certain period of time as an economic decision in order just to to get you out of your destitute state, then that should be for a limited time only and must be limited because I'm a slave of God and you're a slave of God and it's not right that you be slave to me forever. Unless you want to be. Unless you want to be. And we saw the provisions for that in the bit from Exodus chapter 21. This same idea that um, our self-understanding as our relationship with God is one where we're bound to God is there in the New Testament as well. So Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 7, chapter 22. You can see it there. He says, For whoever was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed person belonging to the Lord, just as whoever was free when called is a slave of Christ. So he's saying, you're a slave, you become a Christian, guess what? You're actually a freed person. But you belong to the Lord. You're a free person, you become a Christian, great. Guess what? You're a slave to God. All Christians understand ourselves as being purchased by God through the death of his own son. We belong to him. We're slaves to him. Now that has massive impact when it comes to understanding how slavery was practised amongst Christians, how it was practised amongst the early church. Let me read to you uh, something I found very helpful on this is a a book by a guy who is incredibly bright and therefore writes books that are very hard to understand. You know those sort of people? You you read them all the time right here at uni. Um, Great Christian thinker and writer, particularly on Christian ethics. His name is Oliver O'Donovan and he's written a book called The Desire of the Nations which is about ethics really, social ethics and has a great couple of sections on slavery which I found very helpful for me. Um, But I'm going to just read you a little bit of what he says and I'll read it slowly so you might get some sense of it. Here we go. He says, he's talking about the early church. What the apostolic church wished to affirm, he says, was the possibility of reconceiving the traditional household economic organisation in such a way that its participants, namely slaves and masters, stood on a new footing of equality. Keyword, equality. They were both employees of Christ. They owed Christ the conscientious performance of their respective duties. The master has to ensure that the servant receives justice and equity and was not entitled to use threats. And the servant had to conceive his service as a benefit he was free to confer upon one to whom he was bound 
in a covenant of mutual love and trust. Then he goes on, it's wrong to think of the church as simply tolerating slavery because it could not abolish it. The church believed Christ had abolished it by making us all equal. So he says, the distinctive Christian contribution lies in the conviction that the church itself was a society without master or slave and that this society of equals was so palpably real that the merely legal and economic relations of master and slave had only a shadowy reality beside it. That is, you're a Christian slave and working for a Christian master, you know that you're equal in Christ. In Christ there is no slave nor free. Yet because you, you fulfil your right household and social role as master or slave and the way you fulfil it has been fundamentally changed and shaped by your identity in Jesus Christ that you show love for your neighbour, for one another, even as master and slave, in the way that the master does not threaten the slave, does not treat them harshly, in the way the, 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 the slave renders service freely to the master. Slavery amongst God's people. Okay, the problem though with slavery, the problem with slavery is that slavery as a system is very open to abuse. You can see this even in the Bible. Slavery as a system is open to abuse. What I've tried to do so far is to tell you how slavery was meant to work under God. Not that God ordained slavery. God never said, you must have slaves and masters. No, but within, it was a a human institution, but within it, how are you to operate in love? But as a system, part of the problem is slavery is so open to abuse. Um, You can see this because in the Bible there's many controls imposed. Um, They're told no kidnapping, no involuntary human trafficking in the Bible. Uh, No harsh treatment, no threats to be made. The slaves are to be treated justly and fairly. You can see this is a very different sort of model. But the problem was because the system was so open to abuse, that's why they had to have these controls. And once the controls get taken away, slavery is awful without these controls. If it's not done in this sort of way, it's just dreadful. And I think that's, that's the reason that Christians over the centuries have taken action against slavery, not because the Bible outlaws it, but because as a system it has become so corrupted. It's so lacking in love in the system now that therefore Christians, and I think rightly, have stood up and said, we must get rid of the system because the human heart is so wicked, it just it, it will abuse the power that is there in the system instead of using the power to selflessly serve the other. So as a system, uh, lots of Christians, including William Wilberforce, now you can't see that there unless I do something. Let's turn that off. You might see, the reason I want, to show, I want to show you William Wilberforce, the real guy, not the hunk who's on the movie. <laughs> I'm randomly pressing buttons. There we go. There you go. See, now you can actually see what he really looks like. He looks like a nice sort of fella. William Wilberforce, uh, many of you may have heard there's this movie out, Amazing Grace at the moment, which is about William Wilberforce and his uh, long protracted trial to try to get slavery as a system abolished in the British colonies. 
Um, I thought many people would go and see the movie, but not many people would bother to actually read anything the guy ever read. So I thought, I'm going to end by just giving you a little few of the things he said about it as a system. Uh, This is from a book he wrote in 1823. He'd been fighting slavery for over 20 years at this point. Uh, This is from about, it's an 80 page book and this is about page 32. The first 30 odd pages, he's just been talking about all the abuses of the system. And then he says this, And now without a farther or more particular delineation of the slavery of the British colonies, what a system do we behold? Is it too much to affirm that there never was, certainly never before in a Christian country, speaking about England here, a mass of such aggravated enormities? He says, That such a system should so long have been suffered to exist in any part of the British Empire will appear to our posterity almost incredible. He looks around at the system of slavery and says, it's so full of abuse. He says, people in the future will look back and go, how, how could they possibly have put up with that for 200 years? Allowed that to happen. I make that point because then I think, how many people are in slavery today? 27 million. What are we doing about it? I raise that because we are obliged as God's people, aren't we, to love our neighbour as ourselves? That was the whole point of the Ten Commandments, of the Law Code, of the Book of the Covenant, telling God's people that giving some sort of shape to how you're to love your neighbour as yourself. Now, we're set free from the details of those particular laws, yes, because we're in Christ, not under the old law. But we're still obliged to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and love our neighbour as ourselves. What are we going to do, not just about slavery, but about all the different areas of abuse in our society? Systemic abuse. Problems with the system. In fact, Wilberforce really ramped it up when you get to about page 70. Here you go. While efforts are making to rescue our country from this guilt and this reproach, let everyone remember that he or she is answerable for any measure of assistance which providence has enabled them to render towards the accomplishment of this good work. In a country in which the popular voice has a powerful and constitutional influence on the government and legislation, to be silent when there is a question of reforming abuses repugnant to justice and humanity is to share their guilt. Power always implies responsibility and the possessor of it cannot innocently be neutral when by his exertion moral good may be promoted or evil lessened or removed. You get his point, right? We can't just wash our hands and say, it's not in my backyard. There's nothing I can do. We too live in a country in which the popular voice has a powerful and constitutional influence on the government and legislation. And he says to be silent when there is a question of reforming abuses, is to share the guilt. You know, uh, he spent a long time, we will spend a very long time trying to fight that particular system of abuse. But this is how he finishes his whole book. He says, While, however, we speak and act towards the, the colonists, that is, the people who are slave masters, personally, with fair consideration and becoming candor, Let our exertions in the cause of the unfortunate slaves be zealous and unremitting. 
let us act with an energy suited to the importance of the interests for which we contend. Justice, humanity and sound policy prescribe our course and will animate our efforts. Stimulated by a consciousness of what we owe to the laws of God and the rights and happiness of man, our exertions will be ardent and our perseverance invincible. Our ultimate success is sure and ere long we shall rejoice in the consciousness of having delivered our country from the greatest of her crimes and rescued her character from the deepest stain of dishonour. There's a man full of conviction that he needs to love God and love his neighbours himself and he will do everything within his political power to do so. Why are we so apathetic? Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know that you have worked wonders for us and in us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That you've given us new life in him. We've been raised with him, set free from slavery to sin and fear of death and now slaves to you and slaves to righteousness. We pray, Father, that by your spirit you may so convict us of just our need to love our neighbour as ourselves and to love you with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. We pray, Father, that we might follow the example of our brothers and sisters who have gone before us, who have laboured hard and long to live in this world in the way that you have called us to. We pray, Father, that you might use us to do good in the world and bring glory to Jesus as we seek to share his love with those who are lost. We ask it in his name. Amen.